Note by Lord Alfred Douglas. Recording by Rob Marland. Good poetry is made up of two things, style and sincerity. Both are requisite in equal degrees. As against this proposition, we have two main heresies which, roughly speaking, take in all the bad poetry which is being constantly held up to our admiration by our self-styled critics in the Morning Post and elsewhere. There is the art for art's sake heresy, which upholds style at the expense of sincerity, and there is what I shall denominate the anti-formal heresy, which, because its exponents cannot acquire or will not take the trouble to acquire the technique of poetry, claims that strict forms and rules in poetry are inimical to it, and may and should be broken whenever it suits the poet to break them. The real poet repels both these heresies with equal force. The average alleged poet of today wobbles from one heresy to the other. Occasionally, and by accident, he may stumble into writing a good poem, and this accounts for the rare oasis of poetry which occasionally rewards the weary traveller through the arid desert of rhymed or unrhymed verse which spreads its dismal expanse all round us. Nowadays, we have the phenomenon of an enormous quantity of bad poets writing interminable reams of indifferent verse. There is not a good poet among the lot, but from time to time one or other of them writes a good poem by accident. The result is that never before in the history of English literature has poetry sunk so low. When a nation which has produced Shakespeare and Marlowe and Chaucer and Milton and Shelley and Wordsworth and Byron and Keats and Tennyson and Blake can seriously lash itself into enthusiasm over the puerile crudities, when they are nothing worse, of a Rupert Brook, it simply means that poetry is despised and dishonoured and that sane criticism is dead or moribund. The anti-formal heresy can be briefly dismissed. Carried to its logical conclusion, it denies the difference between poetry and prose. Its most extreme exponent was Walt Whitman, who wrote ejaculatory prose and chose to call it poetry. Walt Whitman has been faithfully dealt with by Swinburne, the last of the great poets in the succession of poets, so I need not waste space over him. The average poet who is infected with the anti-formal heresy does not carry it so far as Whitman. He is content to write decasyllabic lines with an occasional eleven-syllabled line or an alexandrine thrown in between them, and when remonstrated with, he will say that he has done it on purpose to produce a certain effect, as one who should say, I always play a few false notes in a Chopin concerto, I do it on purpose to produce a certain effect. Or he will write a sonnet and break all the rules, or some of them, and will tell you that he did it on purpose, and because he prefers it that way. The real truth being probably that either he did not know any better, 
or was gravelled for a rhyme or is afflicted with a faulty ear for rhythm the irish school of poetry with mr yeats at its head is particularly infected with the anti-formal heresy as to the art for art's sake heresy its chief exponent was oscar wilde and the school of wilde and his imitators and admirers rampantly in the ascendant to-day among our poets and their critics may safely be said to hold the field though it is an undoubted fact that many of the victims of wilde's fallacies in the literary line are quite unconscious of the source of their own convictions concerning the now generally accepted axioms of their art wilde's literary gospel can be summed up by saying that he preached all through his writings that in all art style is of more importance than sincerity and this theory is simply another way of expressing the art for art's sake heresy style is the technique of the art of writing the form into which the artist moulds his ideas two persons may have exactly the same idea and the words by which they respectively express that idea will necessarily fall into the mould of their style to take a concrete example the idea expressed by wordsworth in the first three lines of his sonnet on westminster bridge boldly expressed in prose might be represented as follows it is impossible to conceive any earthly scene which would be more beautiful than this a man who could fail to be impressed by such a majestic spectacle would indeed be dull and soulless this is how wordsworth puts the same idea earth hath not anything to show more fair dull would he be of soul who could pass by a sight so touching in its majesty he takes the idea which might occur to any ordinary man passing over westminster bridge on a fresh and beautiful morning and transmutes it by the alchemy of his style into pure gold quite evidently and indisputably then if one wishes to write finely either in prose or poetry style is of the utmost importance but after all that is no more than to say that it takes a poet to write poetry however sincere a man might be in feeling the beauty of the morning on westminster bridge he could not turn his feeling into poetry unless he had mastered the technique of poetry and surely it is equally certain that unless he sincerely felt the beauty it would never even occur to him to write a poem about it at all further unless a man is so sincere in his feelings of admiration for beauty as to live for a great part of his life under the impulse of such feelings he would not and could not take the necessary pains to acquire such a difficult art as the art of poetry when we say that a poet is born not made we simply mean that certain persons have a natural deep instinct about beauty not possessed by other people which urges them with an irresistible impulse to strive to express what they feel by means of an extraordinarily difficult and complicated art which can only be acquired by taking an enormous amount of trouble nobody i imagine really believes that a poet is born in the sense that he suddenly finds himself in early youth 
fully equipped with all the power to express himself in flawless verse without taking any trouble about it the poet therefore is one who puts into a beautiful form the expression of an overpowering emotion and it follows that his emotion must be quite exceptionally deep and sincere and that it is the motive power of his style which without the emotion to inspire it would be as useless and dumb as an unplayed violin to write poetry without sincerity is merely to play with words but poetry is an affair of the spirit and people who imagine that they're going to turn themselves into great poets by an inordinate admiration of beautiful material things or beautiful people are fostering the most puerile of delusions it follows that when i talk of the preoccupation with beauty as being absolutely necessary to the poet i mean spiritual beauty and nothing else the reason of this is that ethical beauty is at the back of all beauty beautiful forms beautiful sounds beautiful colours beautiful faces are simply the channels by which spiritual perfection is suggested to our spirit and the resulting yearning the desperate struggle upwards of the soul towards the supreme beauty however dimly and darkly felt is what produces all great art whether in poetry or in music or in sculpture or in painting that is why all really great art is founded on and springs from morality beauty in the sphere of the spirit is simply goodness in a greater or less degree the difference between the highest art and art for art's sake corresponds to the difference between philosophy and sophistry having thus defined my conception of poetry and the poet and having indicated what i take to be the two main heresies against which they are essentially opposed i shall not in the limited space at my disposal attempt to follow those heresies into all their ramifications to do justice to the subject would require a fairly lengthy book i shall confine myself to making a few remarks about the sonnet because it has always been my favourite instrument of expression in poetry and because i may safely say that no other english poet with the exception of rossetti a master of form but to my mind distinctly infected with the art for art's sake heresy has devoted so much laborious work to it incidentally in passing i will quote my own words and postulate that poets except in penny novelettes do not pour out words like inspired gramophones all good poetry is written slowly and cautiously with great effort and unspeakable groanings of the spirit it is forged slowly and painfully and link by link with sweat and blood and tears the writing of a great poem leaves a poet exhausted persons who pour out words are rhetoricians and not poets at all a recent writer on the english sonnet has taken as the main thesis of a valuable and in spite of blunders and blemishes a stimulating book the theory that the sonnet is the cornerstone of english poetry and that all the finest poets have been either fine sonneteers or unconscious workers in the sonnet movement 
and that there is no poetry of the highest that does not in some sort distinguishably ally itself with sonnet poetry i dissent altogether from these propositions i think they're fantastic and not in any way borne out by the facts so far from the sonnet being the cornerstone of english poetry it would i think be very easy to prove that it has always been a somewhat forlorn exotic and that very few of the great english poets have thoroughly understood it however as the author of the book to which i am referring has made his theory the vehicle for a fine and spirited appreciation of poetry and the sonnet and as his theory does not involve any fundamental heresy i shall not here further join issue with him having said what i had to say on the matter in another place it is otherwise when i come to consider the attack which he has made on the rhyming of words ending with the e or e sound and words ending in y such an attack is dangerous to poetry and unless it is answered in view of the fact that the author of the book speaks with a certain amount of authority and is himself though tainted with the anti-formal heresy a not inconsiderable poet it might have a very disastrous effect on those aspiring youths who may take him as an infallible guide i am the more concerned to answer him inasmuch as he has done me the honour of taking fourteen rhymes of my own out of my sonnets published in nineteen o nine and putting them in a pillory as examples of careless rhyming it is to be remarked that he does not mention my name and in discussing his charge against me i am returning the compliment if it be a compliment i now quote what he says a collection of nineteen otherwise excellent sonnets published recently has the following rhymes me memory colloquy thee hostility me knee hypocrisy italy memory b minstrelsy loyalty me ecstasy eternity grudgingly immortality the symmetry c immortality curiosity the tree flee inconstancy the thus is poetical indolence justified of her children and thus is the writing of sonnets reduced to a species of kindergarten entertainment of course we must still love and be thankful for these easy and inspired purveyors of easy and uninspired rhyming but how much more closely we could have loved them and how much more thankful could we have been for them if they had toiled a little as well as spun I cannot do better in reply to this somewhat spiteful onslaught than to reproduce the appended extracts from a letter which I sent the gentleman in question as soon as I noticed the passage above quoted from his book. Shelley's Folly, Lewes, February 25th, 1918. Dear, cast your eye over the following rhymes taken from Shakespeare's sonnets die memory husbandry posterity legacy free usury thee thee posterity these last two in the same sonnet i majesty astronomy quality 
sky memory i alchemy poverty injury the melancholy i gravity die wantonly eternity asterisk posterity asterisk liberty injury pry jealousy i remedy antiquity asterisk iniquity asterisk last two in the same sonnet fortify memory cry jollity authority asterisk simplicity last two in the same sonnet impiety asterisk society asterisk memory eternity fly majesty i history die dignity idolatry b prophecies eyes flattery alchemy tyranny uncertainty canopy eternity lies subtleties constancy asterisk c asterisk by remedy i have left out the innumerable rhymes of the me b c etc the rhymes i have marked with an asterisk are bad rhymes because there is the same consonant sound in them nowhere in my sonnets have i used such rhymes footnote this statement is not quite correct in some of my earlier sonnets i have been occasionally guilty of this lapse End footnote. and my rhymes which you pilloried in your book page two sixty are every one of them correct and in most cases beautiful and carefully sought out also it is to be noted that i have written all my sonnets in the strictest petrarchan form which makes much greater demands on rhyme than the easy shakespearean sonnet which since it avoids all the technical difficulties is not really a sonnet at all i have no time to wade through wordsworth's sonnets but the two best quoted in your book have by majesty a beautiful rhyme and free tranquillity equally good in short what you try to impute to me as a blemish is an ornament the truth is of course that rhymes of this character belong to the genius of the english language and form one of its greatest beauties the frequency with which they have been used by all our greatest poets without any exception whatever is accounted for partly by their beauty and partly by the great quantity of words in our language which end with the e and y sounds in conclusion i should like to point out that what i and the author of the book i have referred to call the strict petrarchan form of the sonnet is in my opinion the best and the most beautiful personally i have never used any other and i was using it at least fifteen years before the gentleman in question had either written a sonnet himself or set up as an authority on the subject at the same time it must be observed that there is no real authority for calling it the best form the author of the book i have referred to is apparently not aware that petrarch was not the inventor of the sonnet in italy and that even he petrarch himself occasionally has a rhymed couplet at the end of his sestets a little knowledge is a dangerous thing 
as regards my own poems which are now collected together in this volume i should like to say that they comprise work scattered over a period of nearly thirty years for the childish egoism and the dubious morality of such pieces as apologia and ode to my soul and one or two of the earlier sonnets i hold no kind of brief but at the same time i have felt that while i might be justified in altering and revising faults of technique it would be foolish to change the essential character of pieces which are representative of various stages of my development as a man and as a poet accordingly i have left them exactly as they were written certain other poems of mine which appeared in an edition published in paris in eighteen ninety six with a french translation i have refrained from putting into this collected edition for the same reason which caused me to refuse to include them in the city of the soul published in eighteen ninety nine third edition published nineteen eleven and which impelled me to withhold permission for the republication of the entire paris edition which has been more than once urged on me by the mercure de france who were my first publishers i am well aware that having written these poems i cannot escape responsibility for them and i have no kind of doubt that after my death they will eventually be reprinted my reason for omitting them from this edition is that although there is no actual harm in them they lend themselves to evil interpretations and the fact that they have been so interpreted by those whose interest it has been to attack and defame me and that they have actually been used against me in the law courts by the very persons who most applauded them at the time they were written has given me a distaste for them which such poetical merits as they may possess are insufficient to dispel alfred bruce douglas shelley's folly lose february nineteen nineteen end of section this librivox recording is in the public domain end of the collected poems of lord alfred douglas